You're listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, episode 78. You're talking about putting your fuck parts in my head where my brain lives. You know, in nature, only a handful of creatures mate for life. But isn't that, like, cheating? We can't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Why not? The safety word is banana. It is so refreshing to be with someone who likes to fuck outside the box. This is the Touch of Flavor podcast. Dating and relationship advice by kinksters for kinksters. Join us as we tackle BDSM, sex, non-monogamy, and how to build extraordinary relationships in an ordinary world. And now your hosts, Cassie and Rigel. Right, so today we're talking with Dr. Gina Jorgensen. Gina is a folklore sex educator and writer who splits her time between academic research, teaching at the college level, and writing for the general public about topics ranging from sex and folklore to the history of sex education. And today we're going to be talking about folklore and how everything from fairy tales and myths from a long time ago right up to contemporaneous legends affect how we think about sex and gender in the modern era. One last note, so kind of the bane of podcasting is when you turn the recorder off. Right after we stopped this interview, Gina actually mentioned to us the fact that there is precedent and folklore in a lot of other cultures for more than two genders. So she's going to send us a link for that. And we're going to post that link in the show notes, which is going to be at atouchofflavor.com forward slash 078. So if that's a topic that interests you, or if you want any of the other resources that we mentioned in this episode, be sure to check those show notes out. And without further ado, we bring you Gina Jorgensen. So I'm actually pretty excited because I'm sort of, I, I really enjoy stories. Stories is something that I actually talk to my clients about all the time. I think stories are amazing. So the topic today, I'm actually pretty excited about because I'm also a history buff and folklore kind of takes all of those elements. So I'm pretty excited that you decided to come on the show and are going to share a little bit about folklore with us. How did you get into being involved with research around folklore and sex? Well, As a kid, I read a lot of fairy tales and world mythology and fantasy novels. And when I got to college, I went to UC Berkeley and I thought, well, I want to be a writer, so I'll study history or something, become a high school teacher to pay the bills and then write on the side. And my first semester at UC Berkeley, I took a freshman seminar on fairy tales, a class on linguistics, introduction to sociocultural anthropology, and a religious studies class. And by the end of that semester, I was like, I want all these things combined into one thing forever because it's so fascinating and so relevant. And that's essentially what folklore studies is. It's the study of expressive culture, like not just any part of culture, but the parts of culture that are informally transmitted. So we might say oral tradition, face-to-face, peer-to-peer. But the cool thing about folklore is that it's not a compulsory part of culture. It's not institutionalized the same way that law or education or medicine is. Folklore is what people choose to engage in. It's the traditions they choose to upkeep and maintain. And so when you study folklore, you actually have your finger on the pulse of what people actually care about enough to do in their spare time. So, you know, 
if you decide if you're driving, you're like you have to follow the law. You can't just say screw that stop sign. I'm not stopping for it without consequences. If you're reading literature, Charles Dickens is part of the canon, like it or not. But with folklore, nobody is holding a gun to your head to force you to tell a joke. And there might be consequences if you don't come home for Thanksgiving dinner, the way we celebrate holidays. Like there might be social consequences. But again, folklore is not compulsory in the way that other kind of institutional parts of culture are. It's informal. It's traditional. It's what we do on our own time by and for us. So to me, that's just endlessly fascinating. Folklore exists in all cultures, all time periods, all regions of the world. Most people don't like call it that. Like they don't think in their heads, I'm going to tell a joke. I'm going to use slang. That is folklore. It's just kind of woven into daily reality. And so again, for me, that is so compelling and so interesting. You can learn so much about people by studying their folklore. So you just actually said something interesting, which was that it's woven into daily reality, which actually is right into a question I had while you were talking about that, which is, so how much does folklore play into our day-to-day lives? Oh, so much. Yeah. And that's part of why I sort of gave a definition as I was talking about my exposure to folklore and deciding to study it, because a lot of people hear folklore and they think, oh, fairy tales and unicorns. It's like, well, well, yeah, those things are part of folklore, but it's not all of folklore. So folklore, again, that kind of my favorite definition right now is informally transmitted traditional culture. And that encompasses so many things that we don't even consciously register as folklore. It encompasses slang, like anything that's in urban dictionary, but not the actual dictionary that you use, you know, again, just talking to people. So slang, acronyms, dialect, just at the level of language, ways that you greet people and say goodbye, like see you later, alligator. Like you don't actually learn to talk like that in school. You learn it from your friends and family. Nicknames for people. Things like beliefs and superstitions, like if you observe the five-second rule, that's folklore. Folk medicine, how do you cure a cold? How do you cure a hangover? So many kinds of stories. We'll probably get into those today. And also a lot of health beliefs and behavior, and this kind of comes back to sex, is what do you believe about sex? Because as we all know, the state of sex education in this country is very poor. And so a lot of people learn about sex from like listening to stories their friends tell. So, you know, there have been a lot of polls done like, okay, how do you prevent pregnancy if you ask high schools? They might say by showering right after or by jumping up and down after sex or by douching with Coca-Cola. And all of these are terrible ideas, but they're superstitions. They're a kind of folklore that gets passed on about sex because we don't have a lot of accurate sex education to fill those gaps. So this is this is really interesting, actually. One of the cool things about doing this podcast is us getting to learn as we talk to people. And it's funny because, you know, we, we've had actually a couple conversations with people on the podcast about like religion and how, you know, religion in the country and in the culture permeates our views of sex and kind of changes the way people approach things. And I don't think even going into this interview, like even if you'd asked me five minutes ago, I would have thought that we'd wind up talking about how this folklore, you know, how like the stories that are passed along change kind of the culture's interaction with sex on a day-to-day basis. So that's Mm -hmm. actually really neat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's totally a thing. And is folklore, so taking a step back from the sex for just a minute before we spend the whole podcast there, (laughs) is, uh, so how, how, like widely, I, I, I assume that sex folklore is pretty narrow, but how widely is folklore as a study 
we're kind of a small academic discipline. So, you know, we've been around since the time of the Grimm brothers in Germany in the early 1800s. And um, there's only, there are only a handful of academic departments where you can study folklore. So um, at UC Berkeley, I had a mentor there, um, Alan Dundas. He was running the folklore master's degree program. I came out to Indiana University for my PhD because University of Pennsylvania had just shut their doors. So there are a handful of schools where you can do an undergraduate or graduate degree in the U.S. There are a number of folklore centers in Europe, a couple in India. So we're kind of a small field, but like we're like contiguous with cultural anthropology, with linguistics, with comparative literature, with religious studies. So you actually find a lot of people doing like crossover folklore work. Maybe they're not in a folklore department, but they're trained as a folklorist or they studied under a folklorist. So like, there are a lot of stealth folklorists is what I'm saying. <laughs> um, <laughs> So yeah, it's it's not a huge field of study, but again, like folklore itself weaves in and out of daily life for practically everybody, even if you don't call it that or think of it in that way. So is that sort of the main difference between saying a regular story and folklore? Oh. Or is there any other differences that like distinguish like story from folklore? I would call story maybe the same thing as a narrative. It's a framed report of events. So if I come to you and I just read you my grocery list, green beans, pancetta, I'm going to Trader Joe's, apparently I'm fancy, um, pretzels. If I just read you a list, that's not a story. That's, that's a list of things. That's a random assortment of details. If on the other hand, I say, I was on my way to Trader Joe's the other day and the craziest thing happened, I'm going to give you a, a series of events that I have chosen to frame in a specific way, probably with some artistry, I would hope, to sort of relay something to you, to narrate something to you. So I, I again, I work with this kind of specific definition of story. I feel like in a lot of mainstream sort of marketing and advertising, everything has become a story. Story has become a kind of vague, ambiguous term. Tell your story. Reach your listeners with their story, just story, story, story. And I find that kind of obnoxious personally. So I like to go with this definition of story as like a narrative, as a series of events that's specifically being reported and framed and edited for consumption or for the telling. So in that sense, there are stories within the realm of folklore, and there are also stories outside of folklore. So one of the key things that makes something folklore is that it's traditional, it's been passed on. It has some measure of stability, but also variation. Because if we look at, say, literature, once a book is printed, it doesn't change. It's the same. It, it's the same thing on every page of every edition of that book. Now you might have like a ten-year anniversary edition that might append a foreword or something like that. But for the most part, once something is in print, it's the same. Same thing with DVDs. You know, if you make a movie, there's big production money there, and Maybe you have, again, the director's cut on the special anniversary DVD, but every viewing of that film is essentially the same. Not so with folklore. Variation is inherent to folklore. So if you tell a joke, you can change up the phrasing, but still it's obviously the same joke. You can change the ending of the joke. There are so many ways that variation works its way into folklore. It's almost more democratic that way. Because you don't have to have access to a Hollywood production company to tell a, tell a story or to tell a joke the same way you do to make a film. So this is interesting, perhaps a, a slight digression here. But so when you were when you were talking about story, 
and this is funny because this is something that I talk. We actually wind up. I actually wind up talking to people with relationship stuff about. So you know, you were talking about something that's intentionally a recollection that's intentionally framed. You know, in a certain way for the narrative. And so I'm I'm coming I'm coming from working in a field uh, with my day job where I, I did a lot of things involving interviewing people and and problems around memory and that kind mm, of stuff. Mm-hmm. And one of one of the things that I've come to realize very much so is how. Even when we're not intentionally framing things, everybody observes things differently and everybody recalls them differently, depending on their, you know, their beliefs and their background and everything like that. Even if you have two people who see the exact same event and even if they're trying to be factual. So, I mean, in in one sense, whenever we're recounting the past, we're telling a story to a to one degree or another. I don't know if that fits into your definition or not. No, it totally does. Yeah. And so that's part of why when we talk about storytelling that are different types of folklore, what well, we talk about genre a lot. So, you know, genre is a collection of similar types of things or a classification system, the same way that, you know, if you're looking in the bookstore, or you're browsing on Netflix, they group together genres like sci-fi, mystery, romance. We talk about stories and folklore as part of genres too. So the genre of personal narrative is your own stories, the ones, the things that happen to you, the stories that are significant and left in your life that you tell them and retell them. And those do change over time because like you pointed out, memory is notoriously finicky and fickle. But we also talk about genres that are more collective. So kind of the main three genres that you find in most cultures are myth, legend, and folktale. And we don't use myth in like the Mythbuster sense, but rather a sacred creation narrative. Like almost every culture has a story of here's how we came to be, here's how the earth was created, the first deities, the first humans, and those are told as though they're true. Legend is also told as though it's true. This is where we get things like urban legends and ghost stories, but they happened in recent historical time rather than cosmic back in the day of the the gods time. So a lot of urban legends like um, the Kentucky Fried Rat or the Man with the Hook you know, it happened just over there just last month. It happened to a friend of a friend. There's usually some kind of claim of credibility or authority because it, you're attributing it to someone who knows someone that you know. And then folktale or fairy tale, those are fictional formulaic stories. We all understand that once upon a time didn't actually happen. Narrative jokes are a kind of folktale as well. We all understand if I say a priest and a rabbi walked into a bar. I'm not talking about an actual priest and rabbi actually walking into a bar. Just to clarify, is there a big difference between legend and urban legend? Or are they kind of the same thing, just set at different times? Yeah, they're kind of the same thing. Um, Most folklorists actually prefer the term contemporary legend over urban legend. And like legend is kind of the bigger catch-all category there. Because not all things we would maybe call urban legends happen in an urban place. Like they happen sort of in a modern place, but it's modern relative the narrator. So we have versions of contemporary legends that we have actually traced back to the Middle Ages in Europe. You look at it, you're like, okay, that's the same damn story. But it was told, you know, in in the Middle Ages. And then you see versions floating around right now that are very similar. It doesn't really make sense to call it an urban legend if it's from medieval times. So that's why we go with contemporary legend a lot of the time. But you can use urban legend and contemporary legend interchangeably. So kind of pulling back to your particular field of study, which is sex positivity and negativity and folklore or sex and folklore in general. So when you hopped into studying that, what kind of got you interested in that specific topic, like beyond just folklore as a general 
kind of principle? Yeah. Um, well, I've always been interested in gender studies, feminism, queer theory, and sexuality studies. So for me, it was kind of a natural leap to combine all of those things. I've always been kind of annoyed at what I see as scholars kind of shying away from sex or veering away from sex, like, oh, that's inappropriate or, oh, that's taboo. And I'm just thinking to myself, this is a huge part of humanity. Why are we not talking about it? Um, and the other thing, and this is something that my folklore mentor, Alan Dundas at Berkeley, like he had this whole rant about how prudish most scholars are and <laughs> things like that. And the other thing is that I, I think we have a lot of assumptions, like, you know, contemporary Westerners and Americans have a lot of assumptions about, oh, we're so progressive and we're so amazing and we're so liberal, unlike those poor, unenlightened people either in the past or from other cultures. And if you actually look at the folklore, I like the oral traditions from other cultures in contemporary times or from past European cultures, they have a lot of really body, raunchy folklore. Like they, they have a lot of really racy stuff. So in, in my mind, it's just really important to have this awareness that it's not that we're so much more enlightened and liberal and progressive than other time periods. It's that we talk about sex in different ways, but other cultures have always had folklore about sex and they've always had their own ways of talking about sex. Maybe it was a little more shrouded in euphemism perhaps, but we do that too. So what, could you give an example of what you're talking about when you're talking about in other cultures, there's, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we don't see. Yeah. Yeah. So for example, uh, I am teaching a college course right now on global women's experiences, rights, resistance, transnational feminism, stuff like that. And we're going to be reading a portion of the Arabian Nights. So when most people in the West hear the phrase Arabian Nights or the Thousand and One Nights, they think of Aladdin. Mm -hmm. And fun fact the Arabian Nights, the first original full manuscript of this really long narrative was from a 15th century Syrian manuscript in Arabic, and it did not include Aladdin. That came about in the early 1700s when this French translator, Antoine Galland, he was like, okay, I'm going to translate this big thing from Arabic into French. And also we need some more stories. So he found some like <laughs> Syrian dude who, who, like, hey, you seem like you know some good stories. Will you tell me some stories? And that's where Aladdin came from. It wasn't originally in the Arabian Nights, which anyway, sorry, fun fact, but going on to the sex. So again, <laughs> most- Sounds like something I would say. <laughs> on with the sex. <laughs> uh, so most people, you know, again, they think maybe- Aladdin, maybe Alibaba and the 30, 40 Thieves, Sinbad the Sailor, maybe they've heard the name Scheherazade. But the entire story, it's its what we would call a frame tale. A frame tale is a story inside of a story, kind of like How I Met Your Mother or um, The Princess Bride. Like there's an external narrator telling the story and we see both the inside and outside stories. Yeah. So the frame tale of the Arabian Nights is there are these two kings, Shah Zaman and Shahryar. And Shah Zaman is going out to hunt one day and he actually accidentally sees his wife sleeping with the cook. And in this fit of rage, he cuts them up both up into pieces and kills them. And then he goes to visit his brother, King Shahryar, who is the more powerful of the two kings. And Shah Zaman is like mopey and depressed. And his brother is like, well, you're just being kind of emo. I'm going to go hunting without you. <laughs> And again, this is like a 15th century story. And so Shazman is moping around the palace and he sees his brother's wife with her 20 harem slaves, essentially, um, go out into the garden. Turns out 10 of the slaves are cross-dressed dudes 
So they take off their clothes. This other dude like jumps out of a tree and is like, all right, you're going to have sex with me now to the king's wife. And they have this giant orgy. And Shazaman is shocked, but also he's like, hey, I'm not the only one whose wife was cheating on me. Cool. So he actually feels better about himself. And his brother Shire comes back from the hunt and is like, whoa, you know, your, your color's returned. You're eating again. What's up, bro? So Shazman's like, you're not going to believe this. So they pretend to go out hunting, double back and hide. And they watch this whole like orgy scene unveil itself again the next day. Shariar is incensed. He has them all put to death. And then he and his brother are both like, we are the most unlucky men to ever walk the earth. We're going to go wander around. We're going to desert our duties until we find a man who's less fortunate than us. And so they do. They basically have this like bromance road trip thing. <laughs> and they're in the desert and they're just wandering around and they see this like demon come up out of nowhere and they're frightened. So they go they climb a tree and hide in it. And the demon brings out a big casket, brings out a box. And inside the box is a woman. And the demon pulls the woman out of the box and she's like full size and everything. And she starts to comb the demon's hair. He puts his head in her lap. He falls asleep. Then the woman looks up in the tree, makes eye contact with the two kings and gestures, get down here now or I'll wake the demon up. And the two kings are scared, but they come down. And then she kind of like gets the demon's head like out of her lap while he's still asleep. She stands up and she's like, all right, you two are going to fuck me both like right now or else I'll wake him up. And they're shocked. Like they're they're scared. They're shocked. But she, she holds the power here. So they have sex with her. Uh, the text is not clear whether this is sequentially or simultaneously. <laughs> And then she says, all right, and now each of you give me one of your rings. And as they do this, she pulls out a tiny box. And inside of the box, she says, there are 98 rings in here. Yours make 100. I was a virgin bride on my wedding night going to marry the man I loved when this demon came out of nowhere and stole me. And he keeps me in a box and he keeps me under watch almost every hour of the day. But just to show him that he doesn't have complete control over me, every time he falls asleep, I find a man to have sex with, and I collect a ring from him, and now your rings are going in here as numbers 99 and 100. That is not something you would expect. That is, that is one spiteful, angry <laughs> slave box girl. Um. So, so, so what happens then is these two kings are like, whoa, we thought we had it bad. So they return to their kingdoms, and King Shariar says, women are evil and treacherous, and hence, I will marry a virgin every night and in the morning have her beheaded. And that's where Shahrazad comes in. She's the vizier's daughter, and she says, this is ridiculous. We can't let this go on. And so she makes her father marry her to the king, even though he obviously doesn't want to lose her, his daughter. And that's when the Thousand and One Nights part of the story begins because every night she starts to tell him a story and cuts off at like a cliffhanger right before dawn. So he's like, well, I guess I won't kill you this morning. And that's where all the stories get told during these Thousand and One Nights. And over this time, Scheherazade bears Shariar three children and he's somehow cured of his madness and misogyny. And by the end of those Thousand and One Nights, he decides that he will keep her as his wife and he's no longer going to kill women and they live happily ever after. That's an interesting story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You did not expect that. Yeah. And I love assigning it to undergraduates because they're shocked at how raunchy it is and how violent it is. And then I get to say to them, 
if you watch Game of Thrones, you don't get to complain about how crazy this is. <laughs> well, I, th- I did. I admit that I had a moment where you were like, you said that, the, you know, after the first the first king kills his, uh, you know, kills his wife and her lover and he sees the order, he takes the other king out. I was expecting the other king to be like, yeah, so like <laughs> I had a moment of thinking he was going to be like, yeah, that's great. He's like, oh, shit, I just killed my wife. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and the fun thing too is that it's like, what do you think people did for fun before television, right? Before widespread literacy and mass market media like newspapers and novels and things like that. Oral tradition, like folklore, storytelling, like that was people what people did on long nights to pass the time. And so a lot of these genres of folklore, like the folk tales and fairy tales and the legends and things like that. Epics, like, you know, uh, Homer's Odyssey and Iliad, that's also a kind of folklore. Uh, Beowulf, that kind of thing. It's what people did to pass the time, but it also reflects their cultural values and their ideas about gender and sex and sexuality. So let me ask this. I want to get, I want to get definitely into how, you know, this kind of affects us currently, but I am curious. So now, now that we're talking about like folklore and other cultures, is there any folklore around, we've been talking mainly about sex, but around like polyamory as well. So about polyamory specifically, there is some kind of contemporary folklore. So again, folklore includes things like slang and dialect. Um, You could even make a case for like internet memes being a kind of folklore because, you know, like it's new, it's not traditional, like the old sense, but it does get passed along and modified. There's a lot of little variations. So I think within the poly community, we have terms like, or, you know, we've observed terms like NRE, metamor. So like we, poly people have their own slang. They have their own ideas like compersion and things like that. Um, I haven't seen a lot of like widespread like legends, like stories told in the third person that could be true. I'd imagine a lot of poly folk have personal narratives, like this is how I came to polyamory or this is why we have this rule or something like this. But I mean, the community might be too new to have a lot of like really long-standing traditions around it. But I'd imagine that you find a lot of like kind of smaller microcosms of polycultures like, oh, in this group we have these customs or in this group we have these holidays or these celebrations. Yeah, I was I was I was thinking more like you know, in terms of like older stuff and other cultures, like not necessarily polyamory, but the, it, and I, w- I started thinking about it when you were talking about, you know, the Kings watching the origin. I was like, what are the one Kings going to be like, yeah, cool. Like I usually join in with this kind of a thing. And <laughs> I, so I was like, I, I wonder if there's, if there's anything, not polyamory specifically, I Multiple guess. Multiple partners. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah in, in terms of like old folklore in, in, in any culture. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is I also teach folktales from the Middle East as part of my college courses a lot of the time. Uh, and there's this fantastic collection called Speak Bird, Speak Again, Palestinian Arab Folktales. And because within that culture, polygyny is on the table. So, you know, polygamy means potential for multiple spouses. Polygyny is a man can have multiple wives and polyandry is a woman can have multiple husbands. So because this is a culture in which polygyny is actively practiced, even though it's not super common, they have fairy tales, like folk tales and fairy tales, where there are multiple wives who are kind of like their children are competing for the throne. And I guess if you're using that that definition of it, I, I bet you could actually use some of the like text from Mormonism and stuff as well as. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. I never thought about it that way before. Yeah. As we were sitting here, I was actually thinking about, because we're part of the, the poly communities. We're also part of the BDSM community. And going by how you were describing folklore and how it 
impacts us. I'm actually looking at things a little differently, especially within the like the BDSM community, because there's there's definitely legend legend in the BDSM community. Ooh, interesting. Old guard, old guard, instantly like old guard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Um, and and it's interesting because we actually had friends who are from the generations that are like the older leather communities. And you talk to them and some of the stories or maybe folklore that's told, they're like, that didn't happen. What? Like we were there. We were there. Like that's not how that, 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 that rolled out. Um, and uh, I remember David and I was talking to him and he was like, yeah, you know, whenever I hear folks talk about X, Y, and Z, he was like, the story gets better. <laughs> so um, I was like sitting here and I was like, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think perhaps maybe not so much the poly community because I think the poly communities are a little bit more newer in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. Um, and but poly has been around for a long time, but the communities themselves have kind of, it was more polyamory. Like when you dig into a lot of stuff is there was some of the more like hippie. I was going to say like commune, commune kind of things. Yeah. Culture, but the specific polyamory community is actually more of a new idea. Um, the BDSM community has been around for quite a while, so I think maybe <laughs> that might be the difference. Maybe not quite a quite a while in in terms of folklore, but compared to polyamory, <laughs> yeah. But uh, just just thinking about the fact that like some of the the traditions or ideas, not all are are factual, and <laughs> but they're they're told as factual, so that's interesting. Well, and even then, you're only talking about a time scale of like fifty years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that's what I was trying to get at. Yeah. <laughs> That's how long it took for legend. It's, it's not so new that it can't be considered folklore. Like I said, like you can argue that internet memes are folklore. Um, but I want to point out real quick that whether something's factual or not is not a defining factor in whether or not it's considered folklore because we want to know how it's being transmitted and to whom, regardless of the truth value. Like we don't – like folklore is – we're not here to be mythbusters. We don't actually care if something is true or not. Um we care why people believe it's true or untrue. Like that's what's interesting. Like why is there belief value in the first place? And then how is it being transmitted? And the funny thing is that like legends do jump around a lot because occasionally a newspaper or a radio show will print a legend by accident because they don't realize that there are already other versions of it floating around with variation and somebody who seems trustworthy reports it to them. So that's always really interesting is like, you know, okay, this thing probably isn't true about alligators in the sewers of New York, but why is it interesting and compelling enough for people to repeat? That's what we're kind of more interested in. And just to be clear, so whether or not it, it has truth isn't part of the definition of folklore, but it is part of the definition of whether it's legend, correct? Yeah, a religion is more like it's believed to be true or potentially true. It probably didn't actually happen. Like there might be a grain of truth in there, but again, that's it's more about the belief value than the truth value. So how how does the so we, you know we talked about some of the the stuff in other cultures. So how does the folklore you know, and we can talk about past and present that we have in our history. Um, or in our present, I guess, affect the way that we view sex today and gender mm. roles and everything else like that. It's mm. pretty pretty interconnected. <laughs> I'm sure you could go on about this topic, which is yeah. why I wanted to make sure we're hopping into it. <laughs> uh, so one of my main areas of study is actually fairy tales. And I think fairy tales have done a ton to impact how we think about gender and how we think about sexuality. 
uh, in large part because of Disney. Like, obviously, Disney has been a major factor in disseminating fairy tales for a popular audience and also in making the gender roles very uh, heteronormative in a way. They weren't necessarily always that way. And this is, again, this is part of my mission to, like, make people understand that folklore has always been really dynamic and had a lot of variation. It's always had a lot to do with gender and sex, even if we don't think of it that way. So one kind of classic example is, okay, so folklorists are giant nerds, in case you hadn't noticed. And when we study things like that tra- that hop between different languages, we have to have a system for it. So for example, Cinderella is not called Cinderella everywhere it's told. It's called Cendrillon in French, it's Aschenpudel in German, and so on. So we created a tale type indexing system where we take a tale that has the same plot and we give it a number. So Cinderella is tale type 510A. Little Red Riding Hood is tale type 333. Does that kind of make sense? Okay. Yeah. Tale type 514 is actually about cross-dressing. Like if you think of Mulan... Mm-hmm. It's basically that kind of story. Um, and we have versions of this from all over Europe and a couple of different parts of the world where there's a girl who cross-dresses as a boy for whatever reason, goes out to war, and actually is like really successful as a warrior to the point where the king is like, hey, you cool warrior person, I'm going to marry you to my daughter, the princess. And everyone's kind of like, uh, okay. So sometimes the princess <laughs> is fine with this. She's like, cool, I've got a woman in my bed. Okay, whatever. Other times she goes and complains to her father, dad, you married me to a woman. I wanted a man, not cool. And so for whatever reason, the king realizes his daughter is unhappy with this match and sends off the warrior, the cross-dressed woman, to go complete some impossible task that will probably get her killed so that the princess can start over with a new spouse. Um, What ends up happening is that the warrior is actually successful and pulls off some crazy heist, like, you know, stealing (laughs) something from a giant or a witch or an ogre. And as the warrior is kind of riding off triumphantly with the loot, the giant will shout, I'm going to curse you now. If you're a man, you're going to become a woman. And if you're a woman, you're going to become a man. And so this warrior essentially gets a magic sex change and rides back. And the princess is like, oh, I am quite pleased and fulfilled in bed after all. No need to keep sending my husband off on quest that'll kill him. So that's just one example of how fluid gender and sexuality can be like in the past and in other cultures because we tend to think of it as very static and very heteronormative. So like there were fairy tales like that being told all over the place in the last couple of centuries, but because of Disney's really kind of narrow commercial focus, those have kind of dropped out of what we think of as the fairy tale tradition that's mainstream. Or to take another example, I said that Cinderella was tale type 510A. Um, a close relative, 510B, is titled Donkey Skin or The Dress of Gold, Silver and Stars, or All Kinds of Fur in the Grimms. And it kind of dovetails with Cinderella at some point. But before that, it's like there's a king and a queen who have a daughter and the queen gets sick. And before she dies, she makes the king promise He'll only marry someone as beautiful as her or who has her same golden hair or who her ring fits or who her her shoe fits. And it turns out to be their daughter. So the king is like, well, I guess I better marry my daughter. And it's like creepy, obviously. (laughs) 
And she stalls for time and she asks for addresses gold as the sun, addresses silver as the moon, addresses bright as the stars, um, and then some kind of like animal fur covering, like a, a coat or something like that. And then she puts on the coat and runs away, takes the dresses, goes to the next kingdom over. And here's where it dovetails with Cinderella because she's working as a scullery maid. And the prince of that kingdom is throwing balls. And so she puts on one of the magical dresses each night. He falls in love with her. They get married. Um, and there's more going on there. But like, this is a story about incest that's also basically a version of Cinderella. But nobody has heard of it and nobody tells it anymore. Um, I'm going to wait for the Disney remake on that one. <laughs> <laughs> They're redoing all their stories anyway. Oh, my so. God. Uh, not to that degree. Mm. But yeah, so so I think that fairy tales, like, you know, we used to have this like dizzying variety of stuff happening with gender and sex in fairy tales. It's gotten really narrowed down in terms of like the commercial stuff and the Disney stuff and so on. So I think that the really narrow heteronormative version is what has had an impact on people's ideas about not only gender and sex, but also romance and relationships. This idea of the monogamous, heterosexual, happily ever after, I think it's really pervasive. And I think it's kind of like unfortunate that fairy tales are perpetuating that. So you're speaking about fairy tales. And so far, I mean, the one with sort of the the, the, the cross-dressing warrior mm-hmm. had, had, had a good ending, but it seems like a lot of folklore is sex negative. It may mm-hmm. talk about sex, but it seems like it's sex negative. Is there certain genres that are more sex positive or ones that are not? It, it appears like specifically like legend or in, in my case, like urban legend, mm-hmm. there tends to be like major consequences. Like bad shit happens when you have sex or when you enjoy sex or you do that. Is that all genres or are there genres that have more happier endings to it? Yeah, that's a great question. Honestly, I think most genres of folklore are sex negative because most cultures are sex negative because folklore is almost like a mirror of culture. It's it's maybe not a direct one-to-one reflects everything accurately mirror, more like a, a portrait, like an artistically rendered depiction. Because, you know, again, going back to the definition of folklore as informally transmitted traditional culture, if folklore doesn't resonate with people, it drops out of circulation because there's no reason to keep it around otherwise. So, you know, someone will, maybe a scholar will document it, collect it, put it in the archives. But the, and the best example of this is with um, disaster jokes or political cycle jokes. Uh, nobody's telling challenger jokes anymore. Nobody's telling Dan Quayle jokes anymore. Like, it's not relevant. There, there's no need to. So, you know, if folklore is not relevant, if it doesn't somehow speak to people's needs, values, concerns, even on a subconscious level, it goes away. So when you start to look at what folklore tells us about sex, like, I really, I think most folklore is very conservative and negative about sex because most cultures are very conservative and negative about sex, unfortunately. So if you could, if you if you have, you know, some ideas for this off the top of your head, would you be able to give an example of like some folklore that's sex negative in our culture and then maybe like something comparable that's sex positive in another culture that isn't quite so sex negative? Is that something mm. you would have an idea of off the top of your head? Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of like 
any sex positive folklore right now and I'm kind of struggling. <laughs> um, I think honestly within the kind of sex positive communities sort of on a more like microcosm scale here, I think when you see people who are swingers or polyamorous or kinksters and they have their personal narratives or their um, shared stories about this is how we met, this is how we connected, so-and-so is being a slut and it was great. Um, I think those are kind of like little microcosms of sex positivity that we can maybe focus on as the parallel. But yeah, there's just, there's so much sex negative stuff. Like one example um, I'm thinking of, have you heard of typhoid Mary? In general terms, but go ahead. You've definitely used the term yeah. <laughs> to describe to describe me coming home with sickness. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that, that was like a historical slash legendary figure who was deliberately spreading typhoid a century ago. So the parallel in contemporary legend today is AIDS Mary. And there are all these urban or contemporary legends about somebody who has HIV who's deliberately spreading it. And like, yes, occasionally there is a story in the news where something like that is happening, but those are extremely rare. And the urban legends are very numerous. So the kind of the two main types that this legend follows, one is there's a guy traveling for business and he's at the hotel bar having a drink or two, meets a really attractive woman. They hit it off. They go back up to his hotel room. They have sex. He wakes up the next morning and written on the mirror in red lipstick is welcome to the world of AIDS. Yeah, that's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that one also has a variant ending where uh, the guy's kidneys are stolen and he wakes up in the bath of ice with a note called 911. And then the other main variant that this kind of AIDS Mary story takes is there's this group of college girls and they're going somewhere tropical for spring break. And one of the girls, she's kind of shy. She hasn't really dated a lot of people before, but she meets this wonderful guy. He's a local and he shows her around, takes her to nice dinners, all this nice stuff. And she is so enamored of him after a week that she's like, all right, I'm going to have sex with this guy. And it just keeps getting romantic and better and sexier. And when she finally gets on the plane to go home, he gives her a tiny box and says, wait until you get home to open this. And she opens it up and inside there's a tiny coffin that says, welcome to the world of AIDS. That's uh, so the moral of the story is, you know, don't believe people are being nice to you because they just want to give you AIDS. Basically. Well, and, and the funny thing is. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's very dark. <laughs> that is essentially the moral of the story. Yeah. And the funny thing is it's told in communities like there were uh, one of my uh, folklore colleagues, Diane Goldstein, was collecting this one while she was living in Newfoundland, Canada. And it was really popular there because the moral seemed to be we're good people. If you're bringing HIV into the community, it's from outside. It's those outsiders. They're bad people. We're good people. We, we don't transmit diseases here because we're, we're good. We're safe. Um, which again is like is not true. You know, anybody can have an STI at any time. But it, it's, you know, like it's not necessarily having to come from outside the community. It can come from within the community too. I wanted to touch on this because I, I, I don't know if it's maybe my own perception. Um, but I'm going to segue with a personal story. So when I was younger, one of my friends told me a story. And the story went like this, which was, uh, and it was how she was conceived, right? And the story went that her mom and dad, they were married and mom and dad were supposed to be going to a costume party. Mom decided she wasn't going to go. She was ill, didn't feel good, et cetera, et cetera. Dad said, sure, I'm going to go out to the party anyway. Our friends invited us. We're expecting us there. 
And mom sitting at home thinks to herself, oh gosh, my husband's going to cheat on me and rolls out to the party. And she's in her mask. She sees her husband in a mask. She flirts. The husband has not seen her costume, right? So he doesn't know that it's her and she knows this. So she wants to see how far her husband will go. So she flirts with her husband. They go up to a hotel room. They have sex, et cetera, et cetera. Mom goes home uh, separate from dad because they never reveal their masks. And dad doesn't get home for hours and hours and hours. Dad finally walks through the door. She's like, so how was the the, the uh, costume party? Really angry, ready to rip his head off. And he's like, oh, I didn't go. Uh, my, my buddy Bob, you know, said, hey, why don't we go to this card game thing? And since you weren't going, the whole costume thing seemed lame. So I gave my buddy my costume. But um, so mom had sex with. And he said the party was great or something uh, like yeah, that. Yeah. And, and he told me later that the party was great, you know. So, well, that, that's part of the actual other story. So, so I heard this at a very young age from a friend of mine. Hmm. And I was like, oh my gosh, because she was adopted. So it was a story that she made up about why her stepfather wasn't really her father or whatever. And I, I totally was like, wow. Um, and then I heard the story again, like five years later, <laughs> told somewhere else, written somewhere else. And I found out that like this story has had like many names. And when we were prepping for this uh, podcast, I actually looked it up and I was like, cheating costume story. And I was like, let's see how far that goes back. And evidently there's like this whole like sex in disguise or Halloween sex party story. Mm. And it's like dated all the way back to like 1965 or something. And for me, I just found it really interesting that sometimes we take some of these like folklore things and try to adapt them to our own personal story, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I guess kind of a segue with that is... It seems like a lot of the stories have negative consequences, and a lot of times it tends to be the woman. And and that's why I was saying, I don't know if this is my own personal experience, but a lot of fairy tales and a lot of... Um, I think it's questionable who had the negative consequences <laughs> in that story. Well, well, when you... <laughs> but I'm not disagreeing deeper, with you in yeah, principle. But like when you, when you listen to the story, and I, I ended with my friend's story, but when you read the story, like... It ends up being that like she's pregnant and it's like a really horrible guy that she slept with and the kid ends up being like grotesque and et cetera, et cetera. So like that's the original like version of it when you start going back to find it. But it was actually something, as I said, like I ended up hearing the same story years later and I was like, wait, was my friend like bullshitting me? (laughs) um, So but it does seem like a lot of stories have this like negative thing towards women. Is is that the case or is it seems pretty uh, equal overall? Is it uh, dependent on the culture? Yeah, I would agree. I think women get the short end of the stick when it comes to sex and folklore most of the time. And this is sort of another thing I like to shock my college students with. In one of the earliest versions of Sleeping Beauty from mid-1600s Italy, when she gets a splinter of flax under her finger because of the curse, falls asleep. This king comes along and has sex with her. Like he rapes her while she's asleep. And that doesn't wake her up. She gives birth to two children, twins. That doesn't wake her up. 
It's one of one of the twins is like looking around for something to suckle on and sucks the splinter of flax from under her finger. That wakes her up and she's like, "Wow, I have these babies. I guess I go better go find their father." So, like, <laughs> yeah. So, original Sleeping Beauty rape. Um, it's just part of it, and there are not similarly fairy tales where men are disempowered, enchanted, and raped. That's just that's just not not a thing. Um, yeah. So I'm trying to think of other examples where, I mean, and, and there is, you know, the first welcome to the world of AIDS story I told where a guy um, has sex and ends up with HIV. Like that's one example of a negative consequence for a guy. But I've seen at least one folklorist interpret that legend as sort of a negative commentary about women that like, okay, the guy got victimized and ended up with HIV, but it's because women are out to get men. It's because women are having these like revenge fantasies. Yeah, that's actually how that sounded to me at first blush. Mm-hmm. So, is so talking, and this is interesting because, and this is what I was talking about with learning things, but I didn't realize folklore referred necessarily to contemporary legends as well. What are what are some of the more harmful contemporary legends you've heard that are like harmful towards sex that people believe still? Mm. I can give one that isn't harmful towards sex, but is definitely has consequences. I had a friend who thought that you couldn't get an STI unless the guy came in you. So there's, I could, I could throw that one in. I wouldn't say that's negative, but it is harmful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. There are a lot of rumors, legends, and beliefs that circulate around sex that are straight up inaccurate, which again, like mostly folklorists don't care if something is true or not, but if something is actually harmful to the people who believe it, we might kind of step in and be like, hey, just so you know. (laughs) There's actually a a really good book that I assign whenever I can uh, called, Did You Hear About the Girl Who?, and it's co-authored by a folklorist and a health educator, and they basically basically collect and then debunk almost all of the beliefs and urban legends about sex that you can possibly find. Like they were collecting them from high school students, from college students, from adults. You know things like how to prevent getting pregnant, how to prevent STIs. Um, really kind of awful ones about how menstrual blood is dirty, how lesbians don't have periods. Um, there's a whole series of urban legends about gay men who get a hamster or a gerbil stuck up their ass and you have to go to the hospital. They made it into South Park. <laughs> yeah. And so like, you know, if you talk to any emergency room nurse, people do show up at the ER with all kinds of objects inserted and uh, not able to get out. But the problem is that when these really homophobic legends circulate, it just kind of perpetuates negative stereotypes. Yeah. I want to put a link, actually. I'll put a link to that that book in the show notes. What did you say that was called again? It's called, Did You Hear About the Girl Who? And then the subtitle is something like Contemporary Legend and Human Sexuality. I'll, I'll send you a link to the book. Yeah. Great. That would be fantastic. But yeah, I think really like a lot of the harm that urban legends do is in making out sex to be something that is inherently bad and inherently dangerous because you never hear an urban legend where people go out and have sex as a couple or as a threesome or any kind of fun, wholesome encounter and walk away unscathed. Like and it's nothing old. happens, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, you know, there's um, there's a series 
there are a series of legends about uh, the dangers of masturbation, where there's a woman who lives uh, alone and she has this dog and she will put peanut butter on her vulva so her dog can lick it. And one time she's about to do this, but like actually everybody has like snuck in for a surprise birthday party for her and she like gets naked and smears herself with peanut butter. Um, there's a variant with tuna as well. And uh, they turn on the lights and shout surprise as she's naked with peanut butter on her genitals. So funny story. I actually have heard, so when we talk about variants of legends that appear in our own life, I, years and years ago, lived, well, I didn't live there. I had some friends who supposedly their roommate did that. And it's like, so did that really happen? Or is that just this (laughs) retelling of this legend that, yeah, that's funny. So it's, and I, I, I I think this is the first time I've ever heard that that's an urban legend. As soon as you said that, I'm like, ah. (laughs) Yeah. We kind of talked about how culture reflects the the folklore, right? So is it more that folklore depicts some of our like fears and apprehensions of what's going on with current culture? Because uh, you're talking about like typhoid Mary and now like the, the AIDS academics and these things come out around the time that those things are happening. So is it a lot of this stuff is based on what the big fears are currently at the time that those stories start being created. I definitely think so. Yeah. And at the same time, there's almost some misdirection. Like I think there are a lot of urban legends about the things that we're like supposed to be afraid of, like, you know, Oh, people having sex outside of marriage and people having affairs and people masturbating all this terrible deviant sex, which is going to get us in the end. Um, But a lot of the um, urban legends about, like, uh, say, uh, people being like raped or molested or whatever, like those actually minimize the reality that, you know, a lot of um, sexual assault happens like within partnerships, within relationships and so on. So I think that there's a lot of um, confirmation bias in that we tell stories about the most sensational and bizarre and like scary stranger in the night kind of things happening while ignoring a lot of the underlying reality of what is actually most dangerous to women and to people who are being victimized. So I think it's kind of, we're getting a skewed sense, like we're getting kind of the sensational, um, here's here's what people think is actually scariest sense without actually focusing on the issues that are presenting the most danger to the most people. So I guess two two kind of related questions as we we head towards wrapping up. One is if if somebody was like, man, this is really interesting. I want to read more about this. Is there like a good book you can recommend that talks about uh, sex and folklore? Or is that something we, we got to look forward to coming from you in the future? <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. Did you hear about The Girl Who? And I'll, I'll send you a link to that book. Um, for the HIV stuff in particular, a book called Once Upon a Virus by Diane Goldstein like goes into like all of the legends and beliefs and superstitions around HIV and HIV transmission. There's some really interesting stuff there too with like what she calls um, vernacular risk assessment. So how do people in everyday or vernacular situations actually assess risk? Does hearing urban legends about, oh, well, you only get HIV if you travel to another country and have sex with the native, how does that impact people's daily decision-making? Like, even if you don't 100% believe every legend you hear, it's still in the background noise of when you're thinking about what's actually dangerous and what's actually safe. 
So that's a good book. Yeah, I've been kind of tossing around a book proposal on sex and fairy tales, and it hasn't really gone anywhere yet. So there are some good blog posts out there too. So I'll try and send you some of those links. I think that would be an amazing book. And if you ever write it, you should come back on the podcast <laughs> and, and we it. should talk about it and promote it. So what? So before we, we hop into the, the speed round here, I, I, I kind of was like, you know, it would be cool to finish with if you haven't told it yet. What is your favorite piece of folklore around sex? Mm. Doesn't have to be on any specific topic, but just in general. Okay. Uh, I was lucky enough to supervise a dissertation in the last year about the vagina dentata. And the vagina dentata means a toothed vagina. So basically a vagina with teeth in it. And this is a piece of folklore that I was familiar with before um, my supervisee, Emma Woods, wrote her dissertation on it. Uh, But she basically studied kind of the global incidence. It's not universal. Very little folklore is actually universal found in every single culture. But this is found in um, among Native Americans, among uh, some Australian Aborigines, among Pacific Islanders in India. Um, it's it's pretty pretty widespread. And basically, it's a story. Sometimes it's told as like kind of an older time creation myth. Sometimes it's more of a folktale about people, men who encounter women with teeth in their vaginas, and then the various ways that they try to like go about breaking them. And one of the really like lovely stories is from Japan. It's about these men who are sailors. And they kind of get shipwrecked on some crazy island no one's ever seen before. And it's only women there. And these women are like, we like you. We're going to take you as husbands. But you have to wait a month or two because we have to wait until our teeth fall out. And so they do this and everybody's pretty happy with the arrangement. And then the seasons turn and the women say, all right, we're going to send you home again because our teeth are growing back and we don't want to kill you. And so the men patch up their boat and return to their homeland and go back to their wives and uh, no one ever sees that island ever again. Um, and that was just kind of this strange little story about a little matriarchal culture where women have seasonally toothed vaginas as opposed to permanently toothed vaginas. Um, and it's really an interesting comment, I think, on this fear of women's sexuality and how in so many of the stories, men actually violently bash in the teeth. like They have to domesticate and tame the vagina, which is kind of weird and violent. Um, And I just think it's such an interesting take on sexuality. And again, it's more evidence that people have always had folklore about sex, even if we don't think about it in those terms, even if we're not aware of it. It's something that so many past cultures and other cultures like have an active dialogue about in their storytelling. So before we head into the speed round, um, I want to ask like a personal opinion. And in the last, you know, little bit, we have at least Western culture, like in the US, we have gotten in some ways a little bit more sex positive. Um, There's a little bit more talk in, in the positive direction of sex. Do you think that with that, that the folklore that we start to create now will start to sort of reflect that? Do you think that there will start being more positivity in folklore going forward? Or do you think that the keeping it to the negative and the twists and turns is is where it's kind of destined to stay? Or do you think the culture will, will start to shift that eventually? Hmm. I think I, I agree that we are seeing some small shifts and I want it to become bigger. But I think at the same time, one of the important functions of folklore, one of the roles it serves is social control. Like you can use 
nicknames and storytelling and so on to shame people and to try to control them. And of course, one of the most powerful ways to control people is through sex and through sexuality, making things taboo, making things forbidden and so on. Um, So I think that sex is still a really potent way to control people. And I think as long as that's the case, that we're going to see a lot of sex negative folklore continuing. But I really, I I hope that we see the more positive, um, healthy, accepting, inclusive, diverse, tolerant stuff. I hope we see that start to grow as well. And like I said, I think in a lot of the microcosms, a lot of the subcultures, we are seeing uh, positive movement forwards. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. And are you ready for the speed round? Oof, I guess so. All right. So we're going to get started. So what's something you're not very good at? Resting and relaxing. Best piece of relationship advice you've ever received? You cannot force someone to change. What are three things you couldn't live without? Dance, books, and good food. What turns you on? Intelligence and also muscled forearms. Nice. Tell (laughs) me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on. Okay. I think most Americans spend entirely too much time, attention, and money on their pets and not on other people. And I say this, and I do like animals. I just think we're kind of uh, biased. Okay. (laughs) I don't know how my girlfriend would like that one. What's a book you would recommend for our listeners? I just read a book called Trauma Stewardship. I'll send a link for the show notes. It was really interesting about exposure to secondary trauma and bystander trauma and stuff like that. What is your biggest fear? Mm, Heights. What's the most adventurous thing you've ever done? I went to India by myself. That's pretty adventurous. (laughs) Who is (laughs) your TV movie star famous person crush? Uh, The guy who plays Daredevil on the Netflix series. What's something you're working on right now that you'd like our listeners to know about? Uh, I'm just writing blogs over at Patheos. You can find me on Twitter at Foxy Folklorist, and I link to my blog posts and my other writing there. Okay. I was going to ask where to find you, but I think you've answered that. Is there anywhere else you want to point people? Uh, that's it for now. I have a, a website, uh, www.ginajorgensen.com that, again, kind of points to my writing and such. But that's it's mostly, I'm mostly on Twitter these days. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. And uh, maybe we'll connect again and have you back some other time. I'd love that. Thanks for listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, where we're building relationships outside of the box. Got a question about kink, power exchange, or open relationships that you've been holding on to for years? This is the place to ask it. Submit your question at atouchofflavor.com slash ask, or leave us a voicemail at 833-ASK-TOF1.